For this episode, we're talking about the process of business continuity, plans, planning, testing, exercising, and how they all fit together. Plans versus planning is a long-running theme. We first examined it back in season one. We're revisiting it now because all of our guests this year had a lot to say on the subject. That's partly because we spoke a lot about crisis management, leading the response, and how that experience feeds back into future planning. To cut to the chase, no one really used their plans. At their worst, they're a 50-page, monolithic tome that no one's read, no one can find, and doesn't actually help. So why do we put so much time and effort into creating them? When something is proven, time and again to add no real value, why are we stuck in this cycle? Do we need a completely different solution to the problem? Or is it just the case that most people's plans are bad? This episode, we're going to make a note of not just what's wrong with them, but also what's right. We're going to create a checklist to hopefully help guide the creation of your plans in future. Let's return to something Simon Freeston said in a previous episode to summarise the problem. I think only one person reads an emergency plan and that's the person who reviews it and the only time they read it is when they review it. So if that's the problem, how do we solve it? So the, the principle I follow is when pulling a plan together, I'm thinking about how it will work under in, in situations that are not normal. So at three o'clock in the morning, will that plan work? And if it doesn't, then for 50% of the year, <laughs> it's not going to be useful. And that, that's the way I tackle it. It needs to be as simple as possible. You know, so many plans, I'm sure you've seen them, are hundreds of pages long full of just useless information. You get to like page 30 and then it tells you what you need, what you need to do. Really, at, at three o'clock in the morning, you've just woken up, you're bleary-eyed. You need, to, you need just a quick set of lit actions that you, you can take very quickly and numbers to call to get, get the process started. And if, if you can prove that it works out of hours, then it will work at any, any, time, of the, any time of the day or any point of the, uh, point of the year. Um, now, I know some organisations go as far as actually running tests out of hours to see whether that will work. And that, you know, there's there's a question mark as to whether that's useful or not for most organisations. Um, but that's certainly, um, certainly an option. But practising how that plan will work is, I keep going back to it, is so important because it will highlight those 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 areas that, 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 that you've missed. So It has to be usable at 3am in the morning. And that means it must be short. And it must be a set of actions and telephone numbers to get the processes started. That's a good start to our checklist. Let's again return to something mentioned earlier in the season. Eric McNulty talked about the challenge of getting out of the basement. Plans have a place here, not just to start the recovery, but also to give the responders some structure and focus at a highly stressful time. Pull out that initial checklist. If you can do, okay, I know to do A, B, and C, even if you only get to A, giving yourself something you know how to do turns off that survival response and then let your brain get into more productive mode of saying, okay, what's the real challenge here? How do we solve it? Checklist item number four. It must help you demonstrate some self-competence, 
and let your brain get into a more productive mode. Plans are useless. Planning is everything. No plan survives first contact with the enemy. We've heard variations on this theme since we started the podcast. So it's fair to say that proper seasoned BC professionals don't put much stock in plans. The real benefit comes from planning. But what about using the creation of the plan as a tool to engage the organisation? You'll get a much better response from non-BC people if you tell them you need their help to write the plan than you would if you asked them to sit down and complete their risk register or carry out a business impact analysis. Sometimes the classic route of BIA, creating plans, exercising, might be hindered by organisational barriers like fear, complacency, or just plain apathy. Creating the plan can be a good way to get started with folks who just want to get stuck in and get it done. Julie Goddard had a great example of this. Here, she makes the most of institutional knowledge that already exists, but adds some structure and redundancy. And, and, and actually, from that, it was, interesting, it was an interesting situation because from that we started to almost draw up business continuity plans. And it was a, and it was a site where they didn't really have plans. And I thought this, the way to do this is to take them through a scenario and almost get them to write the plan as they're going along. And it worked. And we had white sheets on the walls all around us. And by the time we'd finished, given that, given that when I started they had no plan, they'd almost written a business continuity planning outline to deal with the situation. And I'd made them write down the basic steps, nothing too detailed, because you, know, you can't write too detailed a BC plan. But they'd basically written, they'd written communication plans, they'd written incident response, incident invocation, they'd written roles and responsibilities. They'd written decision-making points, you know, to, to do with how they were going to deal with these different things that needed to be dealt with. Um, you know, who was liaising with the emergency services. Eventually, they'd, they'd actually written on white sheets a business continuity plan. Um, and, and, the, and the test of it is that you could take the principles that they'd written down and apply it to any situation. And that was... That was an interesting thing because quite often BC managers think that you have to write plans first and then you do an exercise. And obviously that sometimes is the way to do it. I would argue there's a different way of doing it, which is that you, if, especially if you've got people like this that are maybe are a little bit set in their ways, maybe a little bit resistant, start off with an exercise to demonstrate to them, um, to demonstrate to them why they need a BC plan, but also to demonstrate to them what they actually already know and were already doing, but hadn't realised it was BC. And then when you start putting that down on paper and start slotting in the different, you know, finding the gaps and, sl and filling those gaps by saying, well, what about this and what about that? And they go, oh, yeah. And, and, you'd, and there'd be two people sitting around the table. Um, and because they tended to work in silos, it quite often happens in workplaces, I think. People work in silos. In their little world, they do what they do. They aren't necessarily aware of what goes on upstream or downstream from them. And as we were working through this scenario and thinking about all the different things that could happen, and, and somebody would turn to somebody and say, oh, I didn't know you did that. And oh, well, there you go then. And, and actually, it, it started to bring together the cross-dependencies that they hadn't really picked up existed because they all work in their own little world and they don't see necessarily further up or further back. And it was a really interesting way of writing a BC plan. Actually, what Julie's done here is she's managed to sneak in some planning 
in the guise of a plan. It's a good lesson for extracting existing knowledge and operational procedures. Julie also had some thoughts about the reason why some plans end up being so big. You know, we've, we've talked about frameworks and, and outline plans for BC and not detailed plans. And one of the things I would say, and this is where it comes back to using the expertise. So just because something is simple doesn't mean it lacks depth and substance. So if we talked about these simple BC plans, you know, that have got basic steps in them, what brings them to life is the people that understand the detail behind them. And you don't have to write all of that detail down. What you need to know is the people that can do it and their deputies and make sure that there aren't any single points of failure. But people, perhaps through feeling of a little bit of insecurity, will tend to write plans that are sometimes too detailed. Um, but they must not do that. They must understand that simple doesn't mean that, it's, that it doesn't mean that it won't work, you know. As I say, it's the depth and substance is what the people who know the detail bring to it, and they bring it to life. Um, that's really important, I think, uh, when you're writing BC documentation. Simple doesn't mean it lacks substance. Julie's comments about insecurity being the cause of long, ineffective plans makes a lot of sense. You want to show all of your hard work and all of your skill in that plan. It takes bravery or experience to produce something short and simple. But there's a problem here. If you have a very short, very simple plan, you're presupposing a lot of knowledge from your recovery team. Back in season two, Richard Bale captured this issue perfectly. If you have your A-team, you don't really need a plan because they know what to do. The plans are for your B team. So where's all the detail? Oh, it's all in the bronze level planning. So before, if we kind of wind back from the sort of silver gold level, one of the first things I would tend to do um, with business continuity is talk to the people on the ground who know what they do. And, and actually what I do with any organisation is I find a single, find, find my single point of contact within each of the teams. Um, and then I work with them to pull out what are their critical systems or services or processes that they actually run. Not everything. I don't need to know absolutely everything that team does. I need to know what does that team do? Why are they there? Why do we pay them? What happens if they're not there? And from that, you start pulling out the critical processes. So then what I would do then is pull together a number of teams from a particular area that don't necessarily sit in the same room together and say, well, let's work through this at a higher level and say, so, you know, if, if you fail, what happens to those over there? And then start thinking through. So you kind of, that's how I get to the detail. And that, what I would do then, once I've got that level of detail documented, I would tend to pull out a snapshot of it, of the most important and critical bits, and drop it onto a top-level view that we can use during an incident. Okay, that's definitely one to add to our checklist. It must include directions for where to find more information. So before we move on, here's that quick five-point checklist. Number one, it has to be usable at three o'clock in the morning. Number two, it has to be short. Number three, it has to be a set of actions and phone numbers to get processes started. Number four, it must include directions for where to find more information. And number five, it must help responders make the first decisions to get over the adrenaline rush and get brains into a more productive mode. 
So if plans don't really help, what does? This was an area everyone agreed on. The way to get better at business continuity is to test and exercise. Eric McNulty had the best explanation why. If you look at any of your listeners who follow any kind of athletic event, none of those athletes just decides to show up at the championship and give it a go. People practice every day. They have coaching. They look at ways to get better. They make mistakes in less consequential situations and therefore make changes, improve things, get better ready. Yet somehow when it comes to business continuity and crisis planning, people are always, oh, I'm too busy for that. Um, or they may say, you lower level folks, you, you work the plan and to check the operational bits and bobs, but we're too busy. Have someone play the, play the MD or play the, the senior person who's going to be in charge. And that is so short-sighted. Of course, this makes sense. And there's consensus from our experts that exercising is the most important thing. But we still know it isn't done regularly enough. The reason people don't test and exercise enough is it's difficult to secure the time commitment with a hundred other demands competing for attention. Here are some tips for how to do more. These don't, don't have to always be big, complicated, half-day or day-long exercises. You can do an hour over, over lunch, talk about, pull something out of the headlines, you know, ransomware attack, an active shooter, whatever. What would happen here if it was us? And just begin to talk through some of the consequences would be, what you're ready for, what you're not ready for, and, and work through some rough scenarios, which then may give you the, the impetus because you'll find gaps inevitably to say, oh, well, let's take this a little more seriously. We're really worried about this bit. Let's go deeper on that and figure out how we actually actually solve that problem. I'd rather do multiple scenarios, get people thinking about different things. So in one exercise, there'll be three different scenarios, which will be completely different, but will test different elements. So with the, I'm doing an IT one, so it's got two scenarios. One is loss of building, one is loss of people. So one's transport strikes. No one can get in and out of London. It's going to be a nightmare. How are you maintaining your service desk? The other is we lose a building. How are you relocating your service desk to another place? And actually, have you tried doing that? Has, is there everything you need at where you're going? And do you know how to do that? Another reason people don't test and exercise enough is that they're afraid of failure. If you don't run an exercise, you can hide behind your plans and say, we're prepared with no evidence to the contrary. This again is something answered by experience. Those who do test and exercise frequently aren't afraid of problems because they know they're inevitable. Yes, I've been involved in testing of that organization's recovery for, uh, let's say, you know, the last 14 years. And there hasn't been one single test that ever went 100% right in 14 years. And that's the recovery of trading platforms and the, re and the reaction to that. So similar to events, uh, you always learn. You have to take on that learning. You have to change your planning according to that. Uh, and, each, and, and, and basically, I would say you probably never get there 100%, uh, but you improve uh, as you suffer events. Anybody ever tells me they ran an incident or an, or even an exercise and it went perfectly, I think they're either lying or deluded, to be honest, because any incident I've been in, I can tell you something that went wrong. One of the reasons we started this podcast was that we wanted to dispel some BC myths. We wanted to show how the best business continuity professionals really do it. 
If they can write short and simple plans, so can you. If Richard McGlave and Julie Goddard's exercises have issues, yours definitely will too. And that's okay. That's part of the process. But doing those exercises are what make you more resilient. It's two for one on disaster stories today from Dean Beaumont, both from his time in telecoms. The first in the UK, the second in Prague. In the UK, he was able to actually demonstrate the competitive benefit of good recovery. If you can recover when your competitors can't, you're the hero. I hadn't been doing the job very long at all when um, we had a, 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 a telecommunications mast burned down in um, in, in the Midlands and a um, and it knocked out TV and mobile telephone coverage and all kinds of stuff. And we were able to kind of pull that all back together because we had done some BC and, and disaster recovery planning. And, and we were the only operator that was back up and running within literally a day or so. Um, and that kind of made me think, oh, so there's some, you know, there's some value here to this. Other operators were, were still kind of scratching their heads wondering how they were going to get cut service back. So seeing, seeing that, seeing how people come together and work together under that pressure you know, also makes you think about the importance of the relationships that I talked about, but the importance of preparation and knowing who you're going to get to do what. This second story from Dean, again in telecoms, highlights a very different challenge. Here, Dean is working to make mobile communications resilient within the constraints of a beautiful historic city. Um, similarly, having just installed a new network in the city of Prague, for that same mobile operator only to see it um, so if anyone's been to Prague would know that it's a beautiful city and when you build a mobile phone network what you need is lots of antennas and those antennas are fed by um, obviously telecommunications equipment that usually sits in cabinets next to those next to those antennas and the city of Prague did not want their beautiful city blighted with lots of antennas and lots of cabinets sitting on roofs of, of various beautiful buildings so most of the network, although the antennas were, were up in the air, most of the equipment was in cellars or basements of buildings with very long lines, uh, communication lines up to the antennas. And uh, of course, what's the first thing that floods when Prague had, had, had those massive floods back in the early 2000s? What, what floods? The basements. And they flood, don't flood with just water, they flood with sewage and silt and muds and you're digging out your brand new communications network out, out of all of that kind of material. And uh, again, a, a struggle there to get that back up and running. But that also made me realise about how important it is that we do our job and do it well because the population are relying on you to get service back so that they can talk to one another, contact their friends and family, be able to claim their insurance, you know, all of that kind of stuff that we just take for granted that things are there. And then when they're not there, you realize how much you're relying on it. And we're the ones that are there to, to reinstate it and actually make it, make it better. So, you know, that, that was another, that was another long haul incident actually, because it wasn't just a case of going there and cleaning up. It was a case of reinstating the entire network. Uh, I was in there for six months. <laughs> on the recovery? On the recovery, oh, wow. yeah, yeah. But it was quite nice because I had a very nice uh, apartment in Old Town Square, which 
I was very popular because lots of people came and visited me during that time, which was nice. Our advice today comes from Richard McGlave, who sums up the whole plans versus planning challenge really quite nicely. See you next time. So the advice would be that I would give them is to just keep it very simple and just accept one principle, that there is a potential for your business to be interrupted. Don't think too much about what that scenario would be, but just that there's a potential for it to be interrupted. And obviously there's the, the topical things just now, like the present uh, epidemic that, that's going on at the moment, uh, and obviously things that could interrupt them, such as single source suppliers, etc. So I would, I would encourage them not to think too much initially of what the scenario is and stick to the, the fundamental is that we could be interrupted and what would it mean to us to be interrupted over a certain period of time and just simply brainstorm that and try and understand what would the impact be to our revenues and our customers, et cetera, and at what point would it hurt too much? So stay away from the jargon of business continuity such as you know, the recovery time objective, the recovery point objective, maximum uh, business continuity objective, so on and so forth, maximum tolerable period disruption. We are awashed with terminology. And I would encourage them to just think very simply. When does it hurt too much? Why does it hurt too much? What can I do about it? What do I need to put in place to make that a possibility? And by small enterprise I'm really talking here about businesses that maybe have 20 employees or 30 employees. I'm not talking about businesses that have four or 500 employees. To my, to my mind, those should be starting to take this much more seriously because their impacts uh, will, you know, you would assume would be higher uh, in respect of what they're, they're doing, uh, you know, if you're using that as a, the staff as a bit of a ready reckoner. The, great, uh, the, the other great scene in business continues been around for, for years and years. Uh, point of fact, it's not, you know it's not the plan; it's the planning. Uh, you know, rings rings true always. If you, it's the planning of things that get that gets you prepared. The plan itself uh, might not survive the first hour of an incident, but the planning of it will put you in a position that's given you some exposure to how you would feel during those incidents, how you would communicate, and what your priorities would be. So, you know, old adage: but keep it simple, but do something. If you're an SME, don't do nothing and expect to do it at point of incident, uh, because that's uh, a disaster. <laughs> <laughs>